Kakuan. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Second reading is from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. And that's on page 797. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory— Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. 
Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already been made the charge we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. whether you recognize this uh, confession. We often say it's in the Anglican Church. Here it is. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we've sinned against you in thought and word and deed and in what we have failed to do. Have mercy on us. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you and live a new life to your glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We stand in church and we often chant a confession like that. But my guess is that when we say the confession, there's a whole range of different responses. Uh, For some people, as you say, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we've sinned against you. Uh, That minute's silence where you're asked to bring before God the things you've done wrong, that's not long enough. Uh, You could list this whole ream of things that you need to confess to God. Uh, For those kind of people, uh, it's not that they struggle to acknowledge their sin, it's they struggle to acknowledge that God could could forgive them because they feel so so wretched. And I'm guessing there are people like that here tonight. You know that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. But my guess is there's a whole bunch of people, when you say, uh, let's have a minute's silence to acknowledge the things we've done wrong, you're standing there going, I don't really know what to, what to confess. I'm not that bad. And all that kind of habitual things that we all do wrong, like, like gossip or slander or selfishness or, or pride, it's so ingrained in us that we don't acknowledge that we need to confess it. And so we just chant this confession and just mutter it and think, come on, next song, please. And my observation is that the longer that we have been Christians, the longer we've been in church, the less aware of our sin we actually are. And so I I think back to the time when I first became a Christian 21 years ago. And the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ could forgive me, that was just so real to me. I was sitting by my bed, literally tears rolling down my cheeks as I confessed my sins because he could forgive me. But the longer you're in church, the more that just becomes kind of his job and the less aware you become of your sin. And I guess the more religious you become, the more 
good things you do for God, the more that you think that in some way you deserve his forgiveness. And I guess that you stop seeing your, your loved ones, you stop seeing your world as sinners in need of God's forgiveness. Now, Romans chapter 3 is all about the topic of, of sin. Paul's been talking to the Jews, to religious people. He's not attacking them for being Jewish. Paul's a Jew, Jesus was a Jew. Being Jew is not their problem. The problem is their kind of blasé attitude towards their sin. And they think they're okay with God because they've got the law and they've got the covenant and they've got the circumcision. And they think they'll be okay on judgment day because of the things that they've got in their religion. It's kind of that, that kind of false security. Uh, because I'm a Sydney Anglican and because I've got the Bible in my, my pocket and I've got my good deeds under my arm and I know all these songs, I'll be okay on judgment day. And Paul is saying, your religion won't save you. You need a savior, his name is Jesus. There's lots of privilege in being a Jew. It says in chapter 3, verse 2, that they've been entrusted with the very words of God. God entrusted these people with his scriptures. They were custodians of God's special revelation. But that was a privilege. I hope you know that being part of a generation or being part of a church where you've got the Bible in your own language and you've got books galore, you've got Christian friends, that's an amazing privilege. And millions of Christians around the world will give their right hand for that. But having those things do not exempt you from judgment on judgment day. In fact, they can be very dangerous because it makes you blasé to your sin. Uh, the, the big idea of this chapter is this. Just these five words. Here they are. We are all under sin. That's what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 9. Look at it with me. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are, are all under sin. And I know those words sound very unpopular. I know they sound very negative. And after three weeks of sermons on judgment, you might be sitting there thinking, not again, Paul. Can I suggest that they are some of the most loving words you can ever hear? Those five words, we are all under sin, are the most loving words you can ever hear. It's like the doctor who loves you enough to say, we found a tumor, it is malignant, and I know just the solution. We're all under sin, says God, and I've got the only solution for you. His name is Jesus. I can't suggest you should leave this sermon tonight deeply satisfied. Knowing you're deeply flawed, but knowing that God loves you enough to solve your problem. I can't suggest you leave this sermon tonight spurred on in some way to, to love other people well. And the best way you can love your, your friends and your neighbors and your family is to show them their problem and show them your savior. Please listen to this sermon with a kind of background noise saying, this is good. I need to hear this because it shows me how much I really need Jesus. See, you don't just need a psychologist. You don't need a counselor. You don't need a motivational speaker. What you really need is the Lord Jesus Christ because this is your problem. 
we're all under sin. That's what he said in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Look, he's looked at Jews, at Gentiles, at the self-righteous, at the religious. What shall we conclude? Are we any better? No. We are already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, all people, all backgrounds, all nationalities, all religion, in every country in this world, we are all under sin. And when you, when you hear a phrase like that, please don't start thinking about other people. That's our knee-jerk reaction. Then. Uh, yeah, my sister's like that, and my friend's like that. No, no, I am like that, and you are like that. We are all under sin. And to prove his point, the Apostle Paul strings together these seven quotes from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, from Psalms, from Isaiah, to make his point that we are all under sin. Let us unpack that phrase. What does that last word, sin, mean? Please don't think it's just the, the things that you do wrong. And that's your sins. That's the consequence of your sin. Your sin is your, your attitude. It's your heart issue. How does Paul explain it? It's there in verse 11. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands and no one who seeks God. That is sin, not seeking after God. Not seeking God's wisdom and God's opinion on what you need in your life. It's the attitude, I I don't need God, I know best. Or down in verse 18, there's no fear of God. And that is sin, not revering God as God. Not seeking after God, not fearing God. Sin is when you choose to ignore God, basically. Have you ever been ignored? Happened to me. I agreed to meet someone at the coffee shop. You see them walking down the street, and they walk straight past you. It happens in church, doesn't it? You see the person walking down the aisle, and you make eye contact, but they just walk straight past you. It happens with kids. You give them a gift, you give them a toy, and they just grab the gift. Ignore you. Never say thank you and just play with the gift. It might even happen in your marriage. You walk in the house, turn on the TV, eat some food, and totally ignore your spouse who's there. And we do that with God all the time. We turn to God when we need him. We don't seek after him. We don't care what God really thinks about my job or my leisure time or my friendships or my money. It's all about me. And we don't fear God. Literally, verse 18, we don't revere God. We don't respect God as the pure, holy, righteous God. I don't know whether you've ever seen the clip of the 1966 Soccer World Cup. And the only reason I've watched it is because it's the only time England has ever won. <laughs> if you watch this clip, you will see... Uh, the captain of the English team walking up these steps to meet the Queen who is going to hand over the World Cup. And he's doing this with his hands. And he was interviewed after. He said, what were you doing? He said, all I could see was these, these pure white gloves of the Queen. And I looked at my dirty, grubby hands. And I, th- I thought, I can't shake those hands. I can't make those beautiful white gloves really dirty. 
And yet we fail to recognize that we are grubby and we are dirty. And we don't revere God as pure and holy and perfect as we should. And that is the essence of sin. It's not just the things that you do wrong, it's your attitude. You don't give God the glory he deserves. You put yourself in charge, you know best. And I find it really sad when people argue that they don't need Jesus because they're basically good. You can be the kindest, nicest, most beautiful person in the world, but you haven't loved God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Sin is not seeking God, it's not revering God, and, and sin is pervasive, it affects the whole of you. That's what verses 13 to 17 are all about. It affects your throat and your tongue and your lips and your mouth and your feet and your eyes. So verse 13, your throats are open graves, their tongue practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. He's just saying that because you don't seek God and because you don't revere God, then your words are full of sin. Your, your tongues are vicious and your words are deceptive. And your actions, your actions are sinful as well. Verse 15, their feet are swift, are swift to shed blood and they ruin and misery mark their ways. You know, whether it's hurting people, whether it's tension and violence or unrest or pride or even causing loneliness by your busyness. What, what Paul is describing in these verses is, is what has been called the doctrine of Total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. And that, that does not mean that you are as depraved as you could be. He's not talking about that. What he's saying is that sin really affects every part of you. Whether it's the words that you speak, or it's the things that you do, or the thoughts that you have, it is all marred by this sin. Not seeking God and not fearing God. Jim Packer helpfully says this, no one is as bad as he or she might be, but no action of yours is as good as it should be. And that's what it means to be a sinner. Not seeking God, not revering God, it affects the whole of you, and it affects everybody. We are all under sin. Spot the repeated word in verse 10. There's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. He's saying, you know, your best friend, your spouse, your children, your colleague, every man and woman and child are under sin. Now what struck me this week is actually that fourth word. We are all under sin. Why does he say that? Why didn't he just say you are all sinners? The word he uses is under sin. And he's kind of saying that, that you're weighed down by sin. That sin is on top of you. Sin is this crushing burden that you need to be liberated from. Do you remember the, uh, the Threadbow disaster in 1997? 30th of July. 3,500 tons of, of rocks and mud just swept down that hill in Threadbow. They killed 19 people. And that one man, Stuart Diver, who was trapped for 67 hours. Now, he was under mud, wasn't he? He was under mud. Mud was pressing down on him. He was helpless. He was trapped. 
and that's the concept here. It's not just that you do bad things, but actually you are under sin. It weighs you down. You're trapped by it. You're enslaved by it. You're helpless if you want. This is what Galatians 3 says. Galatians 3.22, the scriptures declare the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Or Paul in Romans 7, you know, he says, that the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do do. He's saying, I just feel entrapped by, by my sinfulness. Uh, we're not innocent. We, are, we all make the decisions to, to spread that rumor or to be selfish or to be cruel. But it's kind of like, like sin is weighing down upon you. Do you remember the analogy that's used in Hebrews chapter 12 about running the race with perseverance? How are you going to run that race? By, by throwing off the sin that entangles you. It's a beautiful picture. There's sin that, that stops you living for Jesus. It's kind of on your back and it's weighing you down and you're enslaved to it. And you know that. You know how you know, the thoughts and the words and the deeds that you just can't stop doing. It's kind of like... It's got hold of you. That's the truth. We're all ensnared. We are under. We're entrapped. And we are weighed down by our sin. And what you don't need is a psychologist or a teacher or a moralist. What you really need is someone to liberate you. Isn't that right? You need to be set free from your sin. You need someone who actually rescue you from being under the mud. Let me give you three implications, three real comforts from this, this wonderful truth that you're under sin. Here's the first implication, that we're all speechless before God. If that is true, there is nobody who has an excuse before God. That's Paul's verdict in verse 19. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. On that last day, every mouth is silenced, will have nothing to say, no excuses. I find that quite comforting. I can't blame my dodgy gene pool. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame my society. I can't blame my upbringing. I'm not a helpless victim. I'm responsible for my sin. You know, I can't rock it before God and say, yes, but God will just go, zip it. No excuse. You are responsible. And we love to play, to make, play the, the blame game. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's my parents' fault. No, no, it's your fault. You're under sin. According to Paul, the Jews had an even, even more crazy argument. We'd never use this argument, would we? The argument of verses 5 to 8 basically saying, oh, I'm doing God a favor by my sinning. It's a crazy argument. If our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? If my bad behavior actually shows how good God is, surely that's a benefit to God, so why is he judging me? Now, the more sinful we are, the more glorious the gospel appears. In verse 7, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? You know, I'm doing God a favor by sinning. It's a crazy argument. If I lie, and if I show I'm forgiven in Jesus, then surely that's done God a favor. So I just keep on lying so that God looks better. 
Yeah, I think sometimes we do that. You ever heard a person stand up in church and give their testimony? And God has graciously saved them out of a life of adultery, alcoholism, maybe they're sex addicts. And they're kind of, they're reveling in their sin. And I don't know if you ever sat there in a few and thought, I wish I had a testimony like that. I wish that I had something to show how glorious God is. Stop reveling in, in the sin and start to glory in your Savior. Now, this truth that we're all speechless before God means that there's nobody there who has an excuse. And that changes the way that you do your evangelism, doesn't it? Every person out there needs to hear about Jesus. Uh, the second implication is a, a beautiful one that God is utterly reliable, even in judgment. God is right to judge us. That's there in verses 3 and 4. He says, What if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? No, no, God is still faithful. Let God be true. Every man's a liar. As it's written, so you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. He's just saying that God is faithful. He, he is right to judge. Uh, the quote is actually from Psalm 51. And if you know your Bibles, that's the psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He got Bathsheba pregnant, he killed Bathsheba's husband, and then he wrote this psalm of repentance. And what he's saying there is that basically God is right to judge me. I've sinned against God, and God judging me is part of his being true to himself. God is faithful even when punishing his people. God is just. And again, I find that a comfort that there is no possibility of a corrupt verdict. There's no miscarriage of justice. Everyone will be treated as their sins deserve. But here is the biggest implication of this passage. And this is what you need to hear. Friends, you do not need rules. You need a saviour. I said again, you do not need rules. You need a saviour. You don't need a teacher who will educate you how to liberate you from your sin. You don't need moralists to be a nicer person. What you really need is a saviour. You see, the Jews had the rules. They're there in verse 20. It says, No one declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, by observing the rules. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. He's saying the only thing the law can do is to show you, to make you vividly, vividly aware of how far you fall short of God's glory. That's what happens. Isn't it? As, as, as you know God better, you're supposed to see how far, far uh, short you fall of his perfect standards. And what you need to hear today, friends, is that you are trapped. You are enslaved. And what you really need is someone who will liberate you and free you. And I don't know whether you've ever seen Jesus as being like that. Not just forgiving you, but freeing you, liberating you enabling you to, to deal with your sin and throw it off and to run for him because you can't do that by yourself. You need Jesus. You need his spirit to do that. And that's why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known and his name is, is Jesus. See, I reckon we stand in church and we say this confession, but we don't feel the weight of our sin. We don't feel the burden of our sin. 
and therefore we think that we can free ourselves. We can liberate ourselves. Only, my friends, when you've seen how desperate your situation really is, will you see how glorious your Savior really is. You see, Christianity is not a, a lifestyle option. Christianity is not about a more satisfying, more fulfilling way of life. Christianity is not about Jesus making you a bit happier. Christianity is about your sins being wiped away by the blood of Jesus and the weight of your sin being lifted from your shoulders and the burden of your sin that weighs down on you being lifted for all eternity. And so you can live for Jesus because you're free. That daily battle of throw off my sin and live for my Savior. And the cross will only make sense when you've seen that simple phrase, we are all under sin. It changes the way you see yourself. I was under sin, but I've been liberated by Jesus. I was under sin, but I've been freed by my Savior. And it changes the way you see your friends. Please don't see them as needing a counselor or a psychologist or a consultant. What they need is a Savior, and his name's Jesus. We're all under sin. It is the most loving thing that God could, God could tell you. Because then he sends his son Jesus to liberate you, to free you, to lift that burden from you. Because you can't do it, and he can. So we're going to say the confession together now. And then we're going to sing together. So I'm going to leave the confession up there and give you a moment's silence. A moment's silence to consider your sin. And then the joyful news that he's forgiven you and liberated you and set you free to live this new life for his glory.